Jane, and, and thank you all for coming. Um, it's been, I'm very pleased to see you all here. It is a different crowd. We get a different crowd every time. Don't I we? think Just so. About, yeah. So it's, it's very nice to know that you're interested and um, rightly interested in what I think is one of the most moving things I've seen in an art gallery for a very long time, I have to say. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to have a good look or if you just did the boardwalk thing and you can have a look later on. But um, I think we're enormously privileged to have Din Wang Lei, am I saying that correctly? The Q stands for Wang Lei uh, with us today. Uh, just rushing back to Vietnam on uh, Sunday, so I'm taking the opportunity tomorrow to record a, a program, an interview for my radio program. So what doesn't get said today, you can hear on Monday morning. <laughs> so um, we do have to have, and we always find that in the four walls of this room, if you feel comfortable to ask questions, they're most welcome, they're more than welcome. We really give a, a different dimension if, uh, if we get questions from you, if I fail to go down a road that you'd like to hear more from our artists. But then, welcome you back to Australia. Thank you very much for having me here. But I want to know what the genesis of this exhibition was. What was the idea? Um, about a year and a half ago, she and Brian came to Vietnam and we had a wonderful dinner and a discussion and led to the invitation to, for me to work with the Shannon Foundation. Um, I've always wanted to deal with um, the issues about both refugees uh, because that's part of my history. So uh, I have always kind of put, kind of pay attention to what's happening. And I know there was some issues that's happening here in Australia about, um, uh, so that was the initial kind of impulse to create this work. Uh, Did you see the Christmas Yeah, I mean, it, um, that was near the end of last year, I think. Uh, and that really crystallized the idea for this project. Uh, before I was go through many kind of versions of ideas and discussion with Dean and, and, and Zoe, who's my, uh, the co-curator. Uh, but it was really those images that really um, crystallized the idea because I, when I saw those images, um, I, the first thing I thought, that was my family um, on that boat. So. Yeah, it's just, um, we're very lucky we made it to uh, Thailand, yeah. We'll come to that to your story in just a moment, and I know it's echoed the Victorian story and other, countless other stories, but when you, when you saw the Christmas Island thing on television, and you knew that you were going to do some kind of installation for the first yeah. gallery, Um, the relationship through a process of research for this project, I originally I want an actual boat that brought these refugees over, and I found out that um, because of quarantine they burn all the boats, and with this another ship they blew it up and sunk off the coast. So I thought, I mean, I understand the 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 reason. But I thought it was such a kind of violence act of, of just kind of destroy, obliterate all evidence. And even now today, you know, the government's talking about moving the refugee 
off the coast of Australia, which is also another way of saying, you know, it's, it doesn't exist here. And so that was kind of imposed. And then on the other hand, you know, you have the Endeavour, which is the first ship that landed in Australia. And now it's primarily in harbor, you know, in the Sydney Harbor. And so it's such a contradiction that, um, you know, when that boat, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an illegal boat that landed, a ship that landed in Australia. <laughs> and now it's a, it's a proud symbol. And yet, you know, so it's a, all this contradiction that's like taking place. So what you're saying is that you wanted to, I mean, you all went in big ways. Yes, of course. I mean, um, and that's part of human nature. We migrate. We move from one place to another. And uh, so it's, 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 it's part of, you know, what we do as humans. Because there are thousands and thousands of stories that we don't know, we don't listen to, we uh, we don't give it the time. Um, and I think in many ways um, it's easier not to. And so I think for, that's why in this work it required people to participate. Uh, only The only way you can understand truly is to participate, to actively participate. Uh, in this work, uh, just by you know picking it up and look at the photograph, it will tell you the story. It will tell you who these people are. But I think you know just to get to know the people that come in, you know what their stories are, and like that's what you're doing today to come and listen to my story. And I think that's a very important part, just to listen to learn what our stories. And the thing is that. Um, Nobody wants to leave their own country, you know? And uh, it was a desperate act that... Uh, when, did you, when did you get your equipment? Are you all sterilizing? Yes, we have. Um, there are shops that uh, in Ho Chi Minh City that sell sort of secondhand antique stuff. And when I moved back to Vietnam in 19, uh, about 15 years ago, in the early 90s, um, mid-90s, um, I found this shop that had this old photograph. And so the impulse was to look for my own family's photograph because when we left the country, we, had, we couldn't take it with them. We, we could take only whatever we can carry. And so um, we left everything behind. And so when the impulse for me was to go and look, and I would spend hours and hours, and uh, every chance I get, I go to the shop and look at thousands of photographs, and I never found any of my photographs. Um, but along the way, I start to collect these photographs because they remind me of a time of my childhood, of this kind of lost time. And so they become my kind of surrogate family photos. And so I start amassing them. Quite a bit, and um, uh, and I think just and I'm, I'm I don't think I'm the only one that's doing this. Many many Vietnamese overseas who come back to Vietnam, many of them end up on the street looking for their own path. Is that your childhood? How old were you when you left? Um, I was ten uh, when um, yeah we left in the fall of. Uh, so childhood. <coughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I remember the Vietnam War. Um, and then the Cameroon Rouge invaded in my hometown. Uh, so I remember that one also. The Cameroon invasion was much more brutal than the Vietnam, the, the, the Vietnam War. Um, I just remember floating, body floating on the river. I remember. It's just right, yeah, just a kilometer from the border. And um, in 1978, 77, late 77, 78, um, the Khmer Rouge decided most of southern Vietnam belonged to Cambodia. Um, in the old days, it, it, it was, but I don't know when that was. Anyway, so uh, they started attacking along the border, and, um, and that's, you know, we became refugees and all that. Were your parents politically active? Um, my father was a high school principal, but we, he was also part of a political party before 1975. And my mom was uh, a gold dealer. <laughs> so uh, she's in the eyes of the new uh, government, which is a capitalist, and he worked for the previous regime, so we're sort of blacklisted. So you were associated with the regime that had been overthrown? Yeah. And so, what, I mean, I've always wondered what happened to the people who didn't flee. Did they, did they just have to knuckle down and... I mean, you know, my father didn't want to go. I mean, in 1975, when the country fell, we had so many opportunities to leave. One of my aunts worked for an American company, and she had like 20 airplane tickets. And nobody in family wanted to go, so we gave it out to the neighbors. <laughs> so, so who, who, whose decision was it then to flee? Well, I mean, it took my father three years living under the new communist regime to realize this, that we have to go, that we have to go. And um, so, but then he, I mean, you know, it was so difficult for him to finally come to that decision, but in the end, he didn't, he couldn't go because he was so stressed out that uh, he passed away uh, of a stroke. Uh, and uh, a month, a month, uh, yeah, on the eve, of, pretty much like within a week of departure, and then the boat owner decided they could wait for us after the funeral. So after a month, uh, uh, after the funeral of my father, a month later, we're on the boat heading to and you Thailand. Were Ten years old. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's incredibly traumatic, isn't it? You leave your father, uh, yeah. you can't be all in one yeah. action, really, don't you? Yeah, it was, it was a pretty tough time. But, you know, I think children are very resilient on some level. Um, what are your memories of the boat trip? The first part was scary. And then I got really sick. And I just remember the horizon it was so vast that we were like in the middle of nowhere. And that was pretty kind of amazing in a way because you're so small in that vast ocean. Did they try to chase you? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, when we were, basically, we were on the beach, walking down to the beach uh, to go to the boat, the small boat that take us to a little bit bigger boat. Um, they found out. And so, yeah, so they were shooting at us and uh, throwing grenades at us. Uh, so three of my older siblings ran the other way. They thought we'll all get caught. 
And um, so they the one that got caught. And you know, I was 10 and my younger sibling, my mom, they just all ran to the boat and we made it to the boat and we got to the big boat. And so, so my three older siblings um, were in prison for a couple of months. Uh, usually you spend in prison longer because um, uh, at that time the war with Cambodia was just too many problems for them to hold these people. So they were very lucky. They were got out of prison in about a couple of months. Later. We went to Thailand, like we did Yeah, we ended up in Thailand in Songkhla. And How long? We were there in the refugee camp for almost a year. In California. And then, no, Banks, Oregon. It's, uh, <laughs> it was like this, this uh, I mean, the community was really wonderful. It's a small community, 500 people. You have a church, you have uh, a grocery store, a beauty salon, and that's what's it. <laughs> but it was, no, we were like the only minority in town. And there was another African-American family, but they lived like one town over. And uh, so, yeah, it was quite interesting. Uh, interesting. It was, no, but it was beautiful in a way. It was such an ideal like, place. You know, it was like a mill, there was a mill there. Um, and river trees, and I just remember apple trees. It was so special because, you know, apple is really expensive in Vietnam because we don't grow them. And this just they just littered the ground. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is very magical. <laughs> when, did, when did you start making art? Um, it was not until I was in college for about two years doing uh, computer science. And I was so bored with the uh, debugging program <laughs> in the middle of the night. I was like, I just couldn't do this for the rest of my life. And so I stopped taking art classes, just something to relieve the Did you, did you feel you had a gift, a talent of some kind? Um, well, I think early on, looking back, early on, because you know when I first came to America, I didn't speak any English, so I would spend hours in the library in, uh, this was in junior high, and uh, the only books I could look at is art books. And this school just happened to have a lot of Renaissance painting art book. Mm. And so that was my first introduction to art. And I would just spend you know, all my lunch time looking at this book. And so that, I think that's that sort of trigger uh, the, that. Uh, but the family have always been uh, sort of artistic. Uh, uh, there's always instruments around the family. And my, fa uh, my grandfather was a poet. <coughs> And so there was always kind of culture around the house. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, as a newly arrived immigrant, you want to study something practical. And so it was a really struggle for me to make the switch, to make the final decision. Of, Did you experience racism at school, French um, Yeah, I mean, there were, but not so bad. And uh, the kids were just, you know, they just, <laughs> they just bullied more than I mean maybe maybe I'm trying to justify it in some way. But you have <laughs> written about feeling uh, not feeling as if you belonged. Yeah, I think I came to America at certain point that I think the imprint of Vietnam was much stronger 
And I think maybe all the experiences that I went through in Vietnam. Uh, Did you, were you very aware of the Vietnam War from the American perspective when you were there? Uh, it was only later because I tried, as soon as, you know, when I arrived in, in America, I really tried to block everything off. Mm. And that part of my life is over. So you try to assimilate, you try to become, you know, uh, uh, but uh, it was not possible because, you know, at that time in 1978, 79, and then later on, there's a whole series of uh, Hollywood depiction of the Vietnam War, you know, born the 4th of July, Apocalypse Now, this is like it's coming out. And so it's constantly your past is, you know, sort of kind of being uh, displayed. Uh, and then everybody keeps asking you about it. So finally, I was like, okay, I have to see this movie to kind of understand what they're talking about. And that led to a, a kind of uh, later on in, in college that I decided that I need to understand it more fully because I felt that the way Hollywood representing my history is completely not my history at all. Uh, it belonged to, the way Hollywood represent Vietnam, the Vietnam War was basically it's about American in Vietnam. It wasn't about my experience. And so that led to I need to learn a lot about it, keep kind of reading and researching, looking at images, and in order to understand the way they represent Vietnam, in order to get kind of my perspective, which is completely different. Mm. When did you start, your aunt, I think, taught you weaving, is that right? A, yes. a weaving technique. Is it a traditional Vietnamese weaving technique? Yeah, I mean, grass mat weaving, uh, which we use for everything from sleeping on it to drying grains and uh, rice uh, and things like that. And yeah, it's just, you know, it's, a, it's something that people would do in the afternoon or in the evening. And I just sit next to her, talking to her sometimes and just watching uh, the process. And along the way, it's just natural that I picked up the, the, the technique. So how did you apply it? What materials did you use? Uh, later on, when I was in college, um, this is my last year, my senior year in undergrad, and uh, uh, I was interested in using, talking about the layer and the complexity of identity, because, you know, here I am a Vietnamese, <coughs> learning about Western history, Western art, Sort of enamor with Western art, and but there's also other layer of me that that uh, just overlap and kind of, and so I was interesting this kind of idea of the interweaving <coughs> cultures, identity, <coughs> histories, and and at some point the word interweaving and the word weaving kind of keep coming back. And I thought I can actually physically use uh, uh, depict that in in the technique, and so. Uh, so I start cutting up photographs of different, uh, from whether uh, the early work was kind of images of Vietnam and myself and, and images of Western art that I'm in love with, that I was interested at that time, and I weave it all together and it provides this very kind of complex tapestry of, of a kind of, that sort of, I felt at the time was represent who I am. And uh, it gives layers, and but what's was the the technique also? It's really interesting because nothing is whole; it's all pixelated, mm -hmm. and it depends on where you stand um, and how you move around it. So if you stand at the right 
and little things emerge, images emerge, and then you just move a little, everything fall apart into pixels again. And that's what's really interesting about the weaving is that is this, um, it's, it's the angle of the perspective that, mm. that would give you a view of the work. <clears throat> you mentioned earlier that you moved back to Vietnam about 15 years ago in the 90s. And I want to know, before you made that decision, were you homesick for Vietnam? Was your heart a little bit broken still after the loss of your father, do you think? Um, I think not so much about my father, but I was, I think I try all, all that I can <coughs> to be, to fit in, and I'm just off somehow. And I got a grant from uh, um, the um, one of the foundations, and just to go for a visit. Uh, and had, this, had you been back at this stage? No, this is for after 15 years of being away. And actually, the grant was for to go and look for images of war that was taken by um, the other side, not by Western photojournalists. Um, the funny thing is I came back and they were all suspicious of me. None of the Vietnamese <laughs> photographer wanted to show me their work because I'm well, the one that left. American. Yeah, exactly. I'm the one that left. I'm sort of the traitor of the country. So, so, but the result of that trip is that um, there's something, you know, um, I went to my hometown and um, we, we have this long uh, kind of, uh, we stayed in Hatien for generations. And there's a family burial ground that go generations. And I think standing there for the first time really connected me to my history. Is that you can feel that, you know, layer and layer of, you know. Um, and that was really the first time that I felt connected to something. In America, I was more, I was floating. Try as hard as I try, I just couldn't take root <coughs> somehow. Yeah. And uh, so. That's really interesting. And you must have felt that you looked familiar on the street, too. Yeah, you I mean, that... Me, you remind yeah. me of the Japanese-Canadian environmentalist, David Suzuki, who was born in Canada and didn't speak any Japanese whatsoever, but he's got the most Japanese-looking face you've ever seen. And when he was an adult, he went, into, went to Tokyo for the first time, and he said it was the weirdest thing being on the subway, catching sight of his image in the, in the, in the window, not knowing which he was because he looked like everybody else and not being able to say uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, the first time I came back, it was great. I would spend hours in a cafe, side street cafe, just sitting there, you know, just kind of being, being. So you felt good. Yeah, but you know, as soon as I opened my mouth, they know that it wasn't. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it was just like there was something that connected me there. I just, I don't but, know. But it was now, Vietnam was now under a communist it wasn't about the government, it wasn't about anything. But you decided to go back and live there. Yeah, I mean, because that's home. You know, that for me, it's home. But is it home in the <coughs> truest sense of the word that you can feel comfortable and nurtured there? I don't think. Home is always complicated. You know, even, you know, home here for many of you is not easy. And um, Vietnam is not easy. But it's home, and I'm, I'm there, I'm fighting for it. What's it like, um, what, what sort of communism is, is 
run with the regime is, I mean, it's just a collapse of the Russian Soviet, well, you know, the Russian yeah. form of communism. Mm -hmm. what's, what's it like in Vietnam? I mean, they follow the Chinese model. So they open up economically, but it's still, everything is still, you know, under strict control by the government, culturally, politically, in particular. Um, is there censorship? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you need. Do you self censor? That's something that I think myself and many, many artists asking all the time. And, and I think I'm always trying to be aware of it in my work. And um, I know that this work would never fly in Vietnam. It was never allowed in Vietnam. Um, but I think my, I'm lucky because I have other venues outside of Vietnam that I can still make work. Do they watch you? Do they keep an eye on artists like you? Yes, I mean, um, recently my profile may be a little bit more prominent now that, uh, so I've been invited to have coffee with both the national police and the city police. <laughs> and they're very nice, they're very polite. But I think it was part of the, you know, get to know me, but also as a way of saying, we know who you are. But do they, do they, do, does the same sort of thing happen in Vietnam as happened like at Ai Weiwei in China? I mean, do, do artists uh, get stopped and sent to prison? Well, Ai Weiwei is a special case. I think he's very uh, outspoken about what, you know. Uh, is he reported, is that story reported in Vietnam? I don't think so. <laughs> There are artists have been questioned, many artists have been questioned uh, um, by the cultural police, and that's literally what they're called, the cultural police. Um, but I think the Vietnamese artists, they have learned how to kind of, I would say, not so much direct confrontation with the system, because it would be suicidal. And so we have learned how to kind of navigate around it in many ways to get what we want. And it's not easy, but... Uh, what do people, t do people talk about the war? And do they refer to it as the American war? Uh, the North, the North refer, and the, the, the government refers to it as the American war. But for the Southerner, it's the Civil War. Uh, or was a civil war. Do they talk about it? Is it um, in the newspapers? Not, uh, not so much. And also because recently uh, the Vietnamese government wants a better relationship with the Americans. So that's have been kind of less and less now. Uh, the only issue they're talking about is uh, they're trying to get the American to compensate, or not even compensate, to take some sort of responsibility for the uh, H and H and birth defects. I mean, so those are that's the pretty much the only issue at the moment. How many civilians died in the Vietnam? Do you know that figure? Uh, Estimate about four million. I've read that. Yeah. yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Is the is are young people taught about Vietnamese recent history in school? Um, well, the young people unfortunately are taught a very kind of a very different version than the one I know. Um, and again, it's, it's about the, the, the young people now, the version <coughs> is about Vietnam against the American, not the American, not, American culture. 
not a civil war as well, because it was a civil war for many of us when it started. Is life good in Vietnam for you? Life, yes and no. I mean, uh, I love the fact that I'm there, that um, it's that I'm, I felt like I'm, I feel that I'm contribute to something. Um, and I love to be with the people. And I think for me, the struggle every day is very kind of uh, inspiring for me. And yeah, there the are days that I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, I could be in America and say anything I want and not fear of anything. And, um, but, you know, it's home. Yeah. Home, that's a tricky word. Yeah. Tricky concept. <laughs> so. I'm mindful of the time. Does anybody in the audience have a question at this point? Or um, is everybody... Yes, yes. Yes. My friend came over to say hello, sir. Um, do you feel at all that you're reliving your, the life your father wanted to live? That you, he wanted to find a way not to lose his country and find a way to stay and that in a way you're uh, living a life inspired by your father by finding your niche in, I, in the new Vietnam? Yeah, I mean, in some way, sort of, yes. Because I think, um, you know, in Vietnam, teachers and, and educators are highly respected. And I remember as a child, I always thought that was just really amazing, you know, the, the whole town know who my father is. And, they always look up to him, and I think that's part of it, maybe, that drive me to achieve something. Mm. And today, you know, I think Zoe and I are running um, a gallery, a, a nonprofit space in Hakim City. And I think that's sort of kind of part of doing what my father would have done. Mm. Is there a teaching element in that studio? Yeah, because you know the art education system in Vietnam is just atrocious. Right? I mean, it's really bad. They teach techniques basically. They don't teach people how to think. They don't teach artists how to conceptualize their idea. And um, but also thinking about larger, you know, say outside of who they are, you know, their relationship with society, their relationship with the world. And uh, so that's what Santa is trying to do. And I think, yeah, in, in a way, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm being a teacher. Mm -hmm. yeah. There was another question in here, yes. Oh, really? <coughs> that is a good question. Yes, yeah. very interesting. In fact, you might have answered it there, but because I found the words that you used when you said the struggle was inspiring, and it, you know, it's pretty, pretty different, but it is, you know, I think you could elaborate on that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 I live in an area um, out of kind of necessity a little bit, but out, also out of choice. In an area, it's a really poor neighborhood. 
And every day I see them. I see the, the people struggling with very little, unless they're very happy, you know. I mean, maybe not all of them, but, uh, and looking at what I have, I'm, you know, I'm very grateful for what I have. And so, yeah, so they inspire me all the time. And the recent work is about them, uh, not, not this one, but this is a series that I'm working on. It's about how they maneuver around the system. I'm learning as I live in Vietnam uh, longer. Uh, it's the poor people that learn very smartly how to na navigate the system, to get around the system in a way that really created because they have nothing. And, and they're very smartly how to, and as an artist, I'm, I'm looking at them as a model how to navigate around the government, around the censorship. Is there is there a memory, a cultural memory of what's gone on, or are people trying to, as or as people are getting older and dying, people who were there during the war are, are dying? But is the memory being perpetuated of what happened? I think right now it's sort of dormant, mm. and I think what's going to happen is the next generation or the generation after mm. they are the one going to dig it all up. Yeah. Because yeah. they need to understand it. That probably happened with people from World War Two. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that you haven't um, shown your work in Vietnam. So what do you think of uh, your your doing works and your works cannot be shown in Vietnam? Yeah. I think. I think that art is my work. I mean, San Art is part of my work. San Art is the studio. Yeah, the, 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 the gallery. Mm -hmm. uh, it is part of my work. And we slowly showing work. I mean, we show the national, uh, the infrastructure of nationalism last year, and we got away with it. <laughs> that was very good. <laughs> so. Yeah, talking about self-censorship, I feel that you are extremely lucky that so many Vietnamese artists would um, get envious because they are stuck in Vietnam and they have very um, few chances to show the words outside uh, of Vietnam. And um, you can, and you um, have just, you just said that you have different venues to show your words. Now, um, Lucy Lipa uh, wrote in an essay that you are the best the best known of Vietnamese artists who makes uh, words about uh, uh, Vietnam War related. Tell me your uh, secret of um, success. That <laughs> many people uh, here would like to hear, especially artists. Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, when I first moved back to Vietnam, um, for about six years, nobody knew I was in Vietnam. Um, I need that time to myself to learn about Vietnam, to understand Vietnam. And I think that's for, for many of the Vietnamese artists is that they don't spend enough time to think about the country, about the history, about they don't want to spend enough time with themselves, with their work. Um, I think mask is very important for me. Mm. Did you 
can just intervene here for a minute. Um, if you are not taught at school, if you haven't got the full breadth of education that you can have in a Western country like Australia or America, you're not taught to conceptualise in the way you describe. You're not, uh, certain parts of your history are so blocked out that you don't even know they existed. Um, and uh, you see a sort of consumer world that feels like a utopia. Uh, it's A, a question of talent, and B, it's a question of training and exposure, and C, it's a question of luck. Brian and I went to Vietnam without thinking of inviting Din to come and show at the Sherman Contemporary Art Foundation. We went to Vietnam for completely different reasons, ended up there. I found the woven work um, uh, conceptually compelling, but aesthetically too much for me, uh, too busy. And yet seeing the photos in the one work, uh, do you remember, Dean, the work that was yeah, that wall work? Yes. I said, if we can do a show around these missing people, these lost photos, if we can come up conceptually with an idea that fits that aspect of his thinking, then we would love to have him at the foundation, and he has. But not everybody could do it. Yeah. So, you know, there's no recipe, but there are a few ingredients. Debbie. Yeah, there's a commercial gallery, which is Gallery Quinn, mm -hmm. and then Sand Art. Gallery Quinn is a commercial gallery. Um, and our space, I think in the, initially, people were not quite sure. And, uh, and the idea of uh, non-profit is, for, for them, it's like, <laughs> you're not getting anything out. It's like, why are you doing this? It's really strange for them. So they're very, they're very suspicious of us. <laughs> And, uh, but uh, over the years, uh, and then the last two years, Zoe is working with us now and bring us a more professional level. Before with this artist run, myself and uh, uh, three other uh, artists who run. And, uh, but now we're working a lot with young artists and they finally sort of understand that we don't want anything. <laughs> that we just you know, want to help them and want to, you know, have a, a better contemporary art scene in Vietnam. And so people are coming to us now. Many artists from Hanoi uh, used to be, you know, they're very proud of the fact that Hanoi is the cultural center of Vietnam. And now they're actually envious of Saigon that we actually have San Art, you know. And so it's been really wonderful that uh, we have been able to uh, create a space that people believe in uh, and they, they see is is necessary and it's important for 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 Vietnam. Now we just have to convince the government that is uh, the case. Then we'll be good. Yeah. That's my next question. Lots of fossil fuel utilities, government support. I yeah. just wonder how that works. Um, we it started with uh, I set up a non a foundation in LA and basically a group of wonderful collectors who and my dealers in LA who put a small amount of money into this foundation. And initially we just brought artists and international curator and museum director to come and talk about what is this thing called contemporary art? Because they're very curious. Um, 
And then that was not enough. So we decided to use the funding from that foundation to open fan art. But today's, uh, thanks to Zoe, who grabbed writing skill, it's just amazing. <laughs> uh, and she's really you know, wonderful running the space and curating and everything. And so we've become much internationally recognized kids these days. And so we have uh, some international funding um, also, but we still also have to do a lot of fundraising uh, privately as well. responsibility have always been there, whether it's talking about the Vietnam War and the, the issues that could have not been discussed. And I think just now uh, it is, uh, I think it's always been there for me. I, it was, there was a, the need for me to talk about it. Uh, I, not anymore, but it used to, I used to have this recurring dream that it was just really kind of interesting. Um, my family would be, you know, we're evacuating the city because the Khmer Rouge were coming over. And um, there's, at the river, there's a ferry that takes you over to the other side. And at the river, I, I realized that I didn't bring my camera. And I was like, I tell my mom, I have to go home and get the camera. I have to photograph everything. <laughs> She's yelling at me, he's like, we don't have time for the camera. <laughs> and it's, it's really interesting. And, but you know, we didn't have a camera. Back when, you know, it was just like, it's usually you hire a photographer to photograph whatever. So we never have a camera, but in my dream, this was like, it was for, it was for like a good year of that. It was just happening and- You made it unrecorded. Uh, yeah, it was just, there was the need to record it, the need to tell, the need to show what happened. And uh, so I think it was just, that's just always that 
strive yeah. for that. Yeah. Well, this exhibition certainly does it in a very potent way. Will you join me in thanking them? Yeah.